Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. 80 years ago, British Airways carried out its first flight to Hong Kong. It involved a number of planes and eight days of travel across the world. In 1936, it was known as Imperial Airways, and the few people who could fly paid for very expensive tickets. To mark the 80th anniversary of that journey, British Airways has collaborated with postgraduate students from the Media, Culture and Creative Cities programme to help research and interview British Airways customers and long-serving staff about their experiences and memories of the airline. You can see the HK80 exhibition at the University of Hong Kong until the end of June, and I'll give details about where it is at the end of the programme. Jim Davies, who looks after BA's Heritage Museum in London, was here for the opening of the exhibition. I spoke to him about that inaugural flight or set of flights to Hong Kong and also about some of BA's history over the past eight decades. Well, of course, in those days, the airport was was Croydon, just south of London. But the journey itself, I mean, typically from London up to Paris, but then even even in those complications because Imperial Airways couldn't fly over Italy, so it was a train journey. Paris to Brindisi in the south of Italy, and then continuing on through Basra, Kuwait, Karachi, and eventually up to uh, Penang and Malaya, where you join the feeder service from there up to Hong Kong. An extraordinary journey. Uh, leaving, for example, on a Wednesday and arriving the following Thursday week. I mean, was the attraction of it, though, that, I mean, as you say, it was quite exhausting in Mm. some ways, but did people have actually time to stop off and look at different places? No, this was really, really straight through. This was literally not like a sightseeing, it was a scheduled service. But, of course, the attraction, I suspect, was for uh, people who were working in Hong Kong, living in Hong Kong. If they were coming back to the UK on holiday, it might take two, three weeks, by the ship or whatever... But, but flying started to save them time, say two or three weeks in the leave period. So while, of course, it was initially a select f- a few that would have flown because of the prices or whatever, certainly people they started to save time, and that's the, the advantage of flying, which has come right through to today. Because probably a lot of these people, when they were travelling in the 1930s, and were perhaps officers of the empire or businessmen. It certainly wasn't a leisure game. What would have a flight cost in 1936? Um, that, that I'll have to check for you because, of course, in relative terms, it's very difficult. If I could give you this example, on one of the flying boats from Southampton down to Durban, where we do have the timetable... In South Africa. In South Africa, £125 one way, mm. which they equate up to be something like £10,000 now, £125 on a timetable. But the good news was that included all the flights and it included all the overnight accommodation all the way down because they wouldn't fly at night. Passengers to hotels, quite good hotels, um, dinner, bed and breakfast, all included in the price of the fare. Quite wonderful. But that also included 100 kilos of weight on the flying boat, which included the person's own weight. Yeah, so you were you were very restricted on what you could take. You were. If I wanted to fly from London Croydon to Hong Kong in 1936, it would have taken me how many days with how many stops? Well, it would have taken you certainly uh, eight days, and the stops was probably 14, 15, up, up to 20, depending on the... on. So a very slow and, dare I say, tiring journey. What were the stops? Run me through. Well, for example... 
Uh, I mentioned London, Paris, then you'd have to go by train down to Brindisi. Alexandria in Egypt, Baghdad, Basra, Kuwait, Karachi, uh, Delhi, Calcutta, wonderful places. Uh, Rangoon, Bangkok, all those sort of destinations because, of course, the aircraft had neither the range nor the performance to do long sectors. They had to keep stopping for fuel, crew rest or whatever. So that sort of complicated journey was what they had to face. So in 1936, if I wanted to go from England to uh, Hong Kong, what kind of plane would it have been? Well, even then, not a single type of plane. Um, On the research we did, it involved um, five different aircraft types according to the stage of the journey, plus the train. For example, from London, the wonderful uh, Handley Page 42, an airliner so luxurious it was designed like like a luxury train, or the Argosy, uh, the flying boats, the Atalanta, and then, of course, the de Havilland DH-86 uh, up here to Hong Kong. So they would have been all propeller planes and some you'd have been landing on rivers or in the sea? All propeller planes uh, and a mixture of land planes and flying boats. So if you're in a prop plane, you would have had a view of the landscape throughout. You wouldn't have been high. Would you have been above the cloud? No, because you, 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 the aircraft in those days weren't pressurised, so they couldn't fly at the altitude we do now. And I think, in reading the reports that I have done, you get wonderful views, really, all the way, if the weather was wonderful views. For example, um, flying over Victoria Falls in Africa. How glorious was that? Oh, and, of course, coming right across here, the deserts of Asia and other things. So it would be, it'd be a very wonderful scenic postcard view. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, when you think about it, if you could put up with the bit of exhaustion, UK to Hong Kong, you were really seeing half the world. You were, you were. Um, but, I, but I always think, you know, it must have been very tiring. Uh, the aircraft f- flying at a relatively low level, 5,000 feet, probably in the weather. So nowadays, of course, we fly way above the worst of the weather. So you could well be quite bumpy as well. And you'd have only flown during the day? Only flown during the day because of landing and take-off at night in those days um, was the thing that they just wouldn't want to do, and probably technically uh, what he couldn't do on a reliable basis. And also, when you think about air traffic control in those days, that would have been just a guy with a flag on the runway, would it? A guy with flags, perhaps um, a row of bonfires as they're getting towards, towards dusk. Um, and, of course, if you land on water, then, you, then you're met by a launch... So back in 1936, when you arrived in Hong Kong, where did you land? The arrival, as I know, was actually still in Kai Tak. But, of course, in those days, the aircraft weren't high-speed machines like they are now. Um, so perhaps there wasn't the excitement of what I always called the checkerboard approach, um, but certainly still Kai Tak. Because when I, I remember when I had the luck to come, to come to Hong Kong for the first time with my mother uh, on a jet, and I hadn't realised this approach, and, of course, it was just a wonderful approach. This low-level approach and this late right turn, uh, quite stunning and very memorable. Back in 1936, was British Airways British Airways? No, British Airways actually, by name, is a relatively modern uh, organisation. It took its current title in 1974, the result of an amalgamation between two British airlines. In the 1930s, we're talking about the arrival here, it rejoiced in the name of Imperial Airways. I just love that title. Imperial Airways... um, formed in 1924 as the British chosen instrument of air travel was the expression. (laughs) And, of course, so termed Imperial Airways because, of course, its prime mission was to link the empire 
to link the king's possessions in Africa, in Asia, uh, in Australia, uh, the empire, the Commonwealth, and of course, if it could have done, in Canada as well, because they didn't have the range then. So our predecessor then, Imperial Airways, I, I always loved the title. What were kind of some of the early cargo that was carried? Well, I always think the good fun one really was on the very first daily international scheduled flight. This was by uh, Aircraft Transport and Travel. And wonderfully, we have a, a painting of that very first flight, uh, which was Hounslow Heath, just to the east of today's Heathrow. And it was to Paris, 25th of August, 1919. Um, one passenger and a cargo of jam and cream and grouse destined uh, for His Majesty's Ambassador in Paris. The one passenger was an Evening Standard journalist uh, and, of course, took the, took the wonderful exotic cargo uh, to uh, His Excellency in, in Paris. But, of course, cargo is a whole amazing industry in its own right. Racing cars, fruit, veg, high-tech material, all carried... Uh, in the holds of our aircraft then and now, of course, and now, in fact, there are 100% aircraft freighters, not British Airways at the moment, but there are freighter airlines simply carrying cargo, in fact, a very unmail, unmail. Yes, because tell me about mail. The, the fact is with uh, Post, that was quite a transition that involved the early days of British Airways. With the, with the mail, uh, the, in, towards the end of the 1930s, the governments of the empire... Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, UK particularly, created the Empire Airmail Scheme, a wonderful scheme where they would carry mail to the Empire for the same price by air as by sea. And that created a vast uh, speeding up of uh, the mail service over, over surface travel. So much so that in London they had painted blue post boxes for the air mails. That very important air mail traffic enabled Imperial Airways in the mid-30s to order a fleet of 28 flying boats. Short Brothers at Rochester and Kent, flying boats called the Empire Boats uh, for this Empire Airmail programme. And it's said really that carrying the mail on these Empire routes uh, was almost more lucrative and as important as carrying passengers themselves. I'm talking with Jim Davis of the Speedbird Centre of British Airways. He's visiting Hong Kong for an exhibition here at the University of Hong Kong looking at 80 years of uh, since the first then called Imperial Airways but the first British Airways flight uh, or flights <laughs> involving several aircraft mm. over to Hong Kong which occurred in 1936. Now Jim, you've been involved with British Airways for 50 years. Well, I have to say that um, it's been a great privilege. I first joined BOAC, the predecessor of British Airways. So BOAC? British Airways Airways Corporation. And at that time in Britain, there were two state airlines in 1966. British Airways Airways Corporation operated the long-distance routes from London through to Africa, Australia, India, here in Hong Kong. And it's British European Airways... Uh, which operated European and domestic services. I joined BOAC in 1966. In terms of we were looking at the, the 80th anniversary involves Imperial Airways. So describe then to me the development to the current British Airways. Well, Imperial Airways, created in 1924 as the chosen instrument of British air travel. In the mid-30s, an airline called British Airways Limited was also created, along, a private airline, alongside Imperial, to operate into routes that Imperial hadn't yet opened. But... In 1940, the government had decided to merge Imperial Airways Limited and British Airways Limited 
to form a new airline called BOAC, British Overseas Airways Corporation. But from the date, 1940, you'll see it was born into the war. And so its entire first five years, to 1940-45, was entirely at the beck and call of the government, operating services at the government's direction and behest. A very gallant and a very busy story in its own right, literally supporting the war effort. In what, what kind of ways? They operated, for example, uh, flights uh, supporting British troops in, in Europe and North Africa. They operated a wonderful route called the Horseshoe Route, which operated from Durban right round through the east to Australia, keeping the Empire links going. And on occasion, of course, would, would operate VIP flights, notably for Churchill. Churchill first flew with BOAC across the Atlantic. So Winston Churchill was then British Prime Minister? He was, pri- he was Prime Minister. Churchill had gone to America to see Roosevelt immediately after Pearl Harbour in December 41. He stayed in the White House and made several speeches to Congress. And in January 1942, uh, BOEC were tasked to fly him from North Virginia, the naval base, down to Bermuda, where he was going to have meetings. And Churchill was then going to come back to the UK on a battleship, HMS Duke of York, which was there for him. But Churchill county prime minister he was, realised he could fly back to London and save a whole week of because it was a wartime prime minister so he said to our captain, the BOC captain, Captain Kelly Rogers can you fly me home? A big question to ask a wartime prime minister for the first time on a transatlantic flight and actually Kelly Rogers did the maths and decided he could and so Churchill famously flew back uh, January the 16th, 17th, 1942 from Bermuda back to the UK uh, during the course of the flight, Lord Beaverbrook said to the pilot, "Well, Captain." So, who Lord Beaverbrook? Lord Beaverbrook, he's Minister of Aviation Supply, so member of the cabinet. Well, Captain, uh, if we lose Churchill on this flight, Britain will lose the war. So, no pressure on Captain Kelly Rogers uh, to bring Churchill back safely, which, of course, he did on a famous, uh, I think, it's seventeen-hour flight. But the aircraft, when it left Bermuda, it was so heavy with fuel. I think they had to leave the valet behind because fuel critical, because they couldn't take any chances with Churchill. But in our museum, we have a wonderful photograph of Churchill sitting at the flight, sitting at the controls of this Boeing flying boat. Churchill had some flying experience, but of course you can imagine Churchill. He wants kid with kid with a new toy. He wants to have a go. There he is on the flight deck, complete with a cigar. Oh my God! Uh, and in the and next to the photograph, we have an original copy of the captain's report from 1942. And in the report, it says how they had difficulty refraining Churchill from having a cigar, Prime Minister, you know. Um, but he's also got headphones on. And uh, Churchill said, oh, could he, could he make a radio broadcast to say he was on the way back to London? And Kelly Rogers, the captain, said, well, no, Prime Minister, you really can't do that because your voice is so distinctive. That you heard. Of course, he didn't. No, that would have been, yes. <laughs> Calling all enemy aircraft. That's right. And, of course, uh, Churchill, of course, clearly acceded to that. Did BOAC then get going back on commercial flights to Hong Kong after the war? BOAC got back here uh, in, uh, in 1946 um, with one of the flying boats, very aptly known, the Dragon Service, mm-hmm. uh, from Southampton, t- uh, taking a week, uh, I believe it was, the Dragon Service on the flying boats back in August 1946. When uh, the flights began in 1936, um, how many people were on board? Well, the, the aircraft could take about, I think, between about 10 and 14, depending on the route. So very, uh, by today's standards, very minimal. But, of course, it was a link. And also, of course, it was the actual mails coming through as well.
So what are we talking in 1960s before it becomes well, really commercial? I think, I think the arrival of the Boeing 707 in the, all the world's markets in, in, in 1960, the aircraft became the workhorse of the world. We've got a model of it here in our exhibition here in Hong Kong. And that really became, I think, the big breakthrough in terms of people's expectations or they can travel now in fast speed and comfort and leisure. And even though the flights weren't necessarily non-stop like they are today to London, nevertheless, they were, there was more capacity. There were, there were tourist class fares as well as first. So it became... The, the market was opening up. <laughs> There's been more than usual excitement at Queen's Building, London Airport. It's a romantic place at any time. Holiday atmosphere, business journeys, never a dull moment. This year, there's a new interest. The VC-10, BOAC's outstanding contribution to the second generation of jet airliners. Four Rolls-Royce Conway engines are rear-mounted. The right place, according to modern practice, for many reasons. Result, every seat in front of the engines. Every passenger away from all noise. Up to 120 passengers enjoy comfort of a kind unknown in previous airliners. Incidentally, the VC-10's engines provide a thrust of seven tons, or to use the old-fashioned term, 26,000 horsepower. And that is when they're throttled back a bit, up in the substratosphere, to cruise the aircraft at up to 600 miles an hour. These Rolls-Royce Conways have proved themselves to be the most reliable power units in the air today. Passengers take their qualities for granted. Though some of them may know that these bypass jet engines are used by nine international airlines and run for 5,500 hours without a major overhaul. Every pilot who has ever flown a VC-10 is ecstatic in praise not only of the engines, but of the whole flying behavior of the aircraft. One tremendous asset is that the VC-10 can be airborne, fully laden, with a much shorter takeoff than any other jet of comparable size. the passengers enjoy top standard comfort, so do the pilots on their spacious flight deck. In the economy class, the standard is so high that passengers can easily persuade themselves that they're VIPs traveling first. have always known that on long flights it's impossible to overstress the importance of comfort. To match the superb aircraft, BOAC spent two years of research in developing the finest seats to be found in the air. The VC-10 scores heavily by making sure that everybody has a view, even those in line with the wings. And the inner man has to be satisfied, even at 40,000 feet, with nothing to do but recline in comfort. The problems of keeping the passengers well-fed have been completely solved by the backroom boys of BOAC's catering department. Backed up by the stewardesses, all of them well experienced on long distance flights, and the first rate kitchen staff. All this comfort nonchalantly enjoyed nearly eight miles above the earth. This is really living in the second half of the 20th century.
The uniform is very special. Some of our visitors were commenting on the rather wonderful Scottish uniform because one of our predecessor airlines, or an airline that was merged with British Airways in the 80s, was British Caledonian Airways. And they were very proud of their Scottish ancestry and marketing. And their stewardesses wore the most glorious tarns. And visitors have actually commented how they remember flying with British Caledonian before it was merged with British Airways. I always remember the advert. Oh, that wonderful advert, Caledonian Girls. <laughs> uh, Using the, the Beach Boys song. Is it the Beach Boys? It's just a wonderful I can hear it running in my mind. I'm not going to sing it to your, your listeners oh. now, so I won't, <laughs> won't go there. But uh, very much part of their marketing. Very clever, actually. <laughs> Far Eastern girls do splendid things with rice. German girls are so correct, and the planes are never late. But there's only one girl we want to see as we reach the departure gate. I wish they all could be Caledonian. I wish they all could be Caledonian. British Caledonian. We never forget you have a choice. So you've actually got a, you've also got a photo of the Queen arriving in Hong Kong. We have, because during the course of her reign, uh, the Queen has travelled with, with BOEC, BEA, British European Airways, and ourselves on many occasions, frequently on official state visits on behalf of the state where they provide a whole aircraft for her. And one of the photographs we have on display here splendidly shows her um, leaving Heathrow on a British Airways Lockheed TriStar aircraft. Very, not a fairly forgotten aircraft, the TriStar, but it's very important on this route, and Cathay headed as well. And there she is, uh, waving goodbye to the crowds, presumably Heathrow, uh, as she's leaving on this TriStar for her state, first state visit to China. Great photograph, and there, of course, above her, is flying the Royal Standard. How oh, lovely is that, the Royal Standard. So do they, I mean, with that Royal Standard, would they say, right, the Queen's on board, she's about to land, she's just taxied in, so we just need to get a guy up there and stick the flag on top? Oh, well, or does it fly with the flag on top? Because no, that wouldn't be very aerodynamic, it would, would it? It would be very, un especially the Royal Standard. On those sort of occasions, of course, they, 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 uh, the socket in the flight deck window, and of course, when it, when it... Uh, so it's not putty on the top? No, 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 no. So, and actually, I remember that I had the luck to be on a British Airways inaugural flight to Seoul, South Korea and it was flying at Heathrow the Union Jack and the Korean flag and then the captain said when we arrived in Seoul there'll be a short delay while we fix the two flags back outside the window <laughs> so it arrived on stand flying those two flags so um, and it's actually rather nice hark back because with the Empire flying boats of the 1930s because of course they had to navigate through harbours as a boat before they took off uh, they had to have flags on the flight deck as well. So each of the flying boats of the Empire class had 44 flags on it, so they could actually <laughs> show it in harbour, really. But the, but the photograph here, it's a very good photograph of Her Majesty with, with the, um, with the, with the TriStar leaving for China, which is, of course, a, a, a big, epic state visit in its time. Anything I can get you, Captain? Oh, a spot of coffee might go down very well. I'll crack the whip in the gully, sir. Oh, jolly good. <laughs> Britain's first female Prime Minister comes to 10 Downing Street in 1979, Margaret Thatcher, and under the Thatcher Conservative years uh, of, of a Conservative government, British Airways was privatised. 
British Airways was one of those uh, early targets, I think, for on her on her privatisation policy, along with water and electricity and gas at home. And in 1987, when they achieved privatisation to the market, uh, Mrs. Thatcher uh, had um, selected Sir John King, later Lord King, to go to British Airways to get it to market, which he finally did in uh, 1987. From France to the Philippines, from Jamaica to Japan, from Malaysia to Mexico, from Sri Lanka to Singapore, privatisation is on the move. Popular capitalism is nothing less than a crusade to enfranchise the many in the economic life of the nation. We conservatives are returning power to the people. That is the way to one nation, one people. Now, the Speedbird has been a symbol of uh, British Airways in all its different names uh, throughout. It's on your tie today. Um, now, that worked, but British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, as well as targeting British Airways for privatisation, she also targeted your tails. Well, um, Mrs Thatcher didn't really understand, poor soul. <laughs> <laughs> British Airways decided that it would be, in the 90s, it would look out to the world because... It was reckoned that just under half our global revenue came from outside the United Kingdom. And so recognising that, British Airways took the step of, first of all, uh, adapting the, the logo, you called it, the Speedbird, to the Speedmark, which is the, sort of the, the ribbon, red, white and blue ribbon we now carry on our aircraft. Red, white and blue, the British national colours. But on the tail of the aircraft, they applied uh, designs from around the world. It was called Project Utopia, or World Images. And I think it was a, about 30 images they used, designs from around the world, across the tails. For, for Hong Kong here, it was a Chinese message. I think it means fair winds. The Indian one, the, the, it was a gorgeous reproduction of a blue and gold Indian sari, a lovely design on the aircraft tail. The original one was from South Africa, where it, it featured the design to be on an African hut. Uh, there was the uh, one from Australia, Wallula Dreamings. Now, that was fine, and it was a big rollout and a big ceremony, and it was a serious business point to show that we're an outward-looking airline looking across the world, and these are some of the colour schemes. And it was launched with great ceremony on 10th of June 1997, I think it was. Uh, unfortunately... It is a fact, really, that in Britain they really were not received very well. And famously, as you've um, described, Mrs Thatcher, I think she wasn't even Prime Minister at the time, she had, she, but she retained her great presence and personality. <laughs> and handbags. And handbags. And we, did we get the handbag? <laughs> um, she was shown one of these tales at an exhibition at the Conservative Party conference. Whether she'd been primed or I should never know, but out comes a handkerchief. She says, oh, no, no, this is terrible. And that the poor British Air director goes from hero to zero. He's completely lost. So she just tosses this handkerchief over that Physically chair. covers it up with a handkerchief. We've been talking about flights that took several stages. Mm. When do you have the first direct flight, either going from Hong Kong or London? Yeah. Um, the, it was a Boeing 747-200, uh, the Rolls-Royce um, version, um, which gave the capability of non-stop flights between here and London. Initially, the, the initial Boeing didn't have the performance and it had to stop usually in the Gulf somewhere or in India. But in 1986, the Boeing 747-236 with Rolls-Royce engines was able to do the non-stops. 
Jim Davis there, who looks after the British Airways Heritage Museum in London. If you'd like to take a look at the HK80 exhibition at the University of Hong Kong, it's on show on the seventh floor of the Jockey Club Tower at the University of Hong Kong until the end of June. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. If you're going to fly to Europe or London, this is the plane you ought to be on: the BOAC VC10. It gets off the ground 25% quicker than any other big jet, and lands 20 miles per hour slower. Its cabin is as quiet as a nightclub at three in the afternoon. <laughs>